Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. If you have found the show to be helpful, encouraging, challenging, or beneficial in some way, and you want to sort of just, you know, give back to the Theology in the Raw community, this is a listener-supported show, so I invite you to go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Leslie Hudson Reynolds. Leslie has been a wonderful friend in my life, a mentor, somebody who has spoken into my life with wisdom, compassion, truth, and zeal. If you have watched uh, any of the resources from the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, you have probably already met Leslie. Leslie experiences gender dysphoria. Uh, they have identified as transgender, as non-binary, genderqueer. Leslie will explain what they mean by that. And so without further ado, I want you to get to know my very good friend, my dear friend from a distance, the one and only Leslie Hudson Reynolds. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. As you just heard, I am here with my very good friend, Leslie. Leslie, thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw for the second time. It's been a couple of years at least, two or three years. But yeah. uh, So most of my, well, probably a good percentage of my audience hasn't heard you uh, ever, or at least not in a while. I, I will say, just before we, I throw it to you, I've had so many people respond positive. I mean, just respond in such amazing ways to that series I did on, I think it was called like, uh, meet my LGBT friends or whatever. It was like you yeah. and Greg Coles and Nate and others. And sure. a lot of people started listening to this podcast because of that series. And they really appreciate it. So oh, awesome. I, there's going to cool. be some people at least that are like, Oh, we get to hear about Leslie again. So anyway, who, who is, uh, who, who is Leslie? <laughs> who is Leslie? Um, so I, I grew up in the church, uh, you know, like was it? 83% of, of the LGBT yeah. community. Um, I grew up in the church and um, from the like the earliest of my memories I like I always felt like I was a boy my first crush this is going to date how exactly how old I am but my first crush was Linda Carter's Wonder Woman uh, you know like back in the late 70s early 80s and I was like four or five years old so you know long before I knew anything about orientation or identity um, followed very rapidly by Aaron Gray from Buck Rogers. So maybe <laughs> I had a well-established um, attraction towards women at a very, very young age. Um, you know, and it was when I pictured my future as a kid, you know, it's when you're playing as a child, you you picture, you know, being a mom or, you know, wearing the white wedding dress or whatever. I always, I always pictured being a dad. Hmm. I never wanted to be a mom. I wanted to, to have that protection role. I wanted to, I, I just assumed I would grow up and be a man. It never dawned on me that, that I would grow up and be a woman. That just wasn't even in my, in my, um, in my thought process. Hmm. And I think I was about six or seven when I started realizing when the whole gender difference thing like really set in and that no this wasn't something I was going to change into that I just completely could not identify with the body that I had um mm -hmm. and so you know at four I was identifying with male gender roles and at, at six we're saying okay there's something between my head and my body that's wrong mm -hmm. um and that was I didn't know how to express that you know obviously at that age I was eight the first time that I attempted suicide um wow just wanting to, I, I, I couldn't, 
I was in such a conservative community. I didn't know how to even express what I was feeling. Um, and it, it still to this day when I'm talking to, to super conservative people or, or fundamentalists, it's difficult to try and, and get through what dysphoria is like and what that incongruence looks like. And um, so, so at eight, I was sent to a psychologist um, and nothing about this came out. I was too scared to, to talk about it. So I was like diagnosed with depression at eight. Um, and at that point, my mom had, had just kind of started talking to me, you know, saying, okay, well, Leslie, I think you're just a tomboy. And it had the word boy in it. And so I liked it. Like, I didn't care what it was. It said it had boy in it. So I was like, okay, this, this, this can work out. Um, and, and so it was, I, I just kind of settled into the role of, of tomboy for a while. And it was at that point that I was saved. Uh, the, I remember one Easter that my pastor was talking about how Christ had died on the cross, cross for us and for all of our sins and all of our shortcomings. And I, I just remember looking at my back window and all of a sudden it hit that, wow, all of this stuff that I have going on, even at that young age, I was like, Christ died for this. Christ can fix this. And so there was just like this huge relief and this weight taken off until puberty hit. And then puberty hit and I started becoming a woman physically more. And I started cutting specifically on my chest because that's what I hated so much. Um, and that's when the sermon series, you know, that, that you quote so often happened where when I was in high school where they, my pastor was talking about you know, homosexuality and what deviants they were and, and just, you know, culturally to put a time spin on that, that's when, you know, the AIDS crisis was rising and it's before Ryan White and Magic Johnson and there was any kind of a straight face to, to the AIDS crisis. It was all the LGBT community or, or the homosexuals or the gays or whatever at that point. Um, and so there was this this evilness and this plague that was coming about it and and so even beyond just like how how demented the lgbt community was it was look at what god is doing to try and rid us of these people and so there was just this horrible weight of sitting in the congregation knowing okay this is how i identify this is who i am even though i didn't have language for that but you know knowing that that's what i was and that there's this plague out there that's meant to wipe people out like me and then you know that quote that you used just hitting that I was an abomination to this God that I had so fallen in love with. And at that point, I already had a heart for ministry. I had, you know, going into high school, had planned on, you know, getting a degree in social work or psychology or something like that. And then going to seminary and becoming a counselor or whatever a woman could do. It was, there were certainly limitations back then on, on what women could do from seminary. This is in Texas, um, right? You're... Yeah, this isn't, this is a Southern Baptist in Texas. Okay. So, um, so there were definitely shackles on what a woman could do at that point. Um, and, you know, not, not long after that sermon series, it wasn't immediately after, but I finally got up enough courage to go and, and talk to the pastor and, and just kind of shared, you know, look, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't feel like I'm this gender. I feel like I'm a man. I don't know what words to put to this because there wasn't the language culturally that we have now. So it was incredibly isolating. Um, and, you know, I said, it said, you know, I'm attracted to women. You, you've preached that this is an abomination. I don't want this. I want to be what God has made me to be. And there were two doors that went into his office. And one, uh, you know, you go in through the secretary's office and one leads out to the parking lot. And I was escorted out of the one to the parking lot and asked to never return. Um, and I was, I was a teenager at that point. And I kind of floated to another church in the area, but that, that also ended horribly. So, um, completely walked away from the church for the remainder of my high school time. When I got into college, 
I don't know why I thought I would go back and why I chose to go back to the Baptist Student Union. I don't know. That probably wasn't the wisest choice um, that I'd ever made. But so I, I was doing a summer mission, which is something that everyone in leadership at the Baptist Student Union was supposed to do. And I was a, I was a, um, a chaplain intern at a federal prison camp, started dating one of the lieutenants who was female. And so I would preach on Sunday morning. I was giving communion. I was counseling out of the chaplain's office. And then was going home to a woman and I just, I couldn't, I felt like such a hypocrite and I, I just couldn't live with that. So I completely walked away from, from the church. I, I still loved God. I still wanted to serve God, but I just didn't feel like there was any space for me in God's world. Mm-hmm. And, and so I ended up in theater, met my wife, Sue. Um, we were together for six years and she, uh, she died in an unfortunate accident after a long illness. And during that time, I, I had, there was a, a ch- local church where she had been volunteering with a homeless mission. And I called that pastor and I just said, um, you know, I, I'm 35. I, I have no idea how to plan a funeral, but I need someone to officiate. And, um, you know, this is the quote that, that you've used so many times, you know, he just said, I would be honored to. And that floored me because that was nothing like anything I'd ever experienced uh, from a Christian before. So it went from me having this horrible, destructive experience with Christianity to this like beautiful, redemptive phrase that built into an incredible relationship of, of shepherding and pastoring and friendship and him becoming almost like a big brother to me at times um, and just loving me as a human being. And I was able to step back into the church and step back into who Christ intended me to be um, because I was treated as a human being. He realized that there was so much more to me than, than who I was as an LGBT person and, and let me explore all those different avenues. And he never stepped up against me or, or pushed back unless I specifically brought up, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so unless there was something destructive that I was about to do, and there were destructive things that I did that he stepped in on. Um, but unless that, unless there was something destructive about to happen, he let the spirit work in me and he trusted the spirit's voice in my life. And between that and the pastor I have now, those, those two guys have just really gotten me where I am now. And, and I'm able to, to now speak into other kids' lives who are experiencing what I experienced. I want to come back to what you're doing now, but I, I, I can't leave this alone. This, I mean, this is, uh, something I hear over and over and over from LGBT people who are maybe coming to faith for the first time or have been kicked out of the church or left the church and coming back when they're given space to work through this on their own, when they're not pressured to have the right theology or whatever, when they're, when the past, when, when, when relationship and love and care is the priority and the foundation and everything else is within that context, I've just seen, and not that everybody ends up on a certain theological side, but it just seems like such a healthy environment for people to ask and wrestle with those hard questions. Would you say that that, I mean, that if you had one piece of pastoral wisdom for people working with LGBT people with their faith and sexuality, would would that be it? Give them space to work through this? Absolutely. Yeah. It's that, that would certainly be a big piece of it. Um, Yeah. It's, with anything, you know, it, just going back to, you know, Jesus examples of, you know, of being, you know, having uh, being built on the sand and the rocks and everything until you, if you can't figure out what your foundation is on your own, yeah. if you're doing it just because somebody else told you to, the second that storm hits, it's going to crumble. 
you have to find that faith on your own you can't do it because your pastor said it because your mom said it because your dad said it you have to find that for yourself so that when temptation comes and struggles come you have something strong to stand on and and that strength comes from god in your relationship with god not what you've been not a prescriptive answer that you've been given so yeah having that and unfortunately sometimes that means starting down the wrong path um and it's, but that's where you just have to trust that the spirit is in that person's life. Yeah. And then the spirit is so much better at its job than you could ever be. <laughs> you know, it's, that's hard for us as humans because we see something and we want to protect those that are in our flock or those, you know, that, that are yeah. around us. But, um, but you do, you just have to trust the spirit and, and be there and, and know that they're tethered to you in Christ. But um, yeah, it's scary to kind of watch people go down that that path and as a leader it takes a lot of faith to let them do that well especially as a leader let's just say who is maybe theological minded they know the bible and they can you know the more you know the bible the more you study it's like you can see where people like oh yeah that's not right or that's not good whatever but again just like what you said like it's still you can't force this is a good friend of mine luke thompson a little shout out to luke he's an avid listener you know he we often talk about this idea that you can't force by definition you can't force belief you can't force right. somebody's hand to sign the doctrinal statement and, okay, they signed it. Oh, good. We're, no, like either they believe something or they don't. You can't make them do that. Genuine belief must come from within the person. Otherwise, it's not genuine belief. So it, it, hands off the wheel, folks. I mean, the spirit <laughs> has it, and maybe it'll go the route you want to go. Maybe not. Maybe it's going to be a lot messier than you think. Probably it's going to be a lot messier than you think. And um, can, you, can you give us just some uh, real practical, tangible examples of how – that pastor and that church cared for you in during that time like what 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 tangibly did they do that was like wow i haven't experienced this from christians or the church before so one of the big things it's not so prevalent now it is it, it is a part of the part of the culture but not as prevalent as it was was that lgbt people were out to molest kids uh-huh. And so that was a big part of my mindset is that families were trying to keep their kids away from me. And so simply by having, because being in Christian culture was so new to me, I'd been out for almost 18 years at that point. Um, you know, they were inviting me into their homes and were calling me families and part, part of their family. And I had like one particular family um, joked that I was a sister wife, you know, and um, you know, so it was, um, it, just including me in the family unit was so huge mm-hmm. because as a single person, uh, and, and this is true for any single people, not just LGBT sing, single people in your church, um, you know, you're not going to cook a huge meal for yourself or whatever. And so just having, you know, being part of a family, being able to sit down to a family meal was so huge and, and just validating who I was as a human being. So that was a big part of it. Um, and, and just just over and over again, just little practical, just little things of, of just including me in spaces that that took extra effort. Um, okay. to, yeah. Yeah, and not treated. I've heard you say like just not not treated as like some project, but just as a friend, a fellow yes. struggler, broken person, just like anybody else. Maybe your yeah. struggles and brokenness might might be different than somebody else, or might overlap, whatever. But we're all beggars at the foot yeah. of the cross, you know. Um, Sure. And it was, there was in the very earliest of conversations, um, you know, it's, I, I, I told, so the, the pastor's name Steve and I, I told him, I was like, Hey, you're just wrong about the whole gay thing. I'm sorry. You're, you're just wrong. <laughs> How did he and respond? Language, yeah. What did he say? <laughs> and my, my language was not nearly that graceful. <laughs> the way I put it. And so, man, this guy, I put him through the ringer. Um, the, 
hats off to him. Like I look back, you know, 10 years later and just can't believe all the stuff he went through yeah. for me. But, um, but you know, when we, when we were talking about it, once again, this is only when I brought it up, this it was nothing that he felt the need to sit down and tell me. Um, but he said, you know, Leslie, if you slip up, it's, we're still going to love you. It's not going to change if you, you know, if you end up with, with a woman or if you end up, you know, transitioning, we're still going to love you no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so not feeling like there was some, that there was some, something I had to live up to that I, that I was free to just be me. That freedom to, to mess up mm. allowed, allowed the spirit to get into my life and to really work through the messy stuff because I wasn't being set up for failure. When you, when you give somebody, whether it's LGBT stuff or not, when you give somebody a line that they have to measure up to, they're going to fail at some point. We're all going to fail at some point. And so when you know you, when you look at that, you say, wow, there's no way I can do that. That completely binds the spirit's hands because the person is, is reacting out of fear. And it's, on the side B podcast a few weeks ago, um, a guy's name's Luke and forgive me, I forget his last name, but he said something so incredibly powerful to me is that when you operate out of fear, you test, you don't trust. That's good. And so as an LGBT person coming back into the church, I was incredibly fearful. And so I was testing all the time and it took them, um, just really loving on me and saying, okay, it doesn't matter if you mess up or not, or, you know, what happens here, we're going to keep loving you for me to be able to get, begin to trust. And uh, the pastor that I have now, I think I've shared this with you, that, um, that you know, looking at, at all the baggage that I have in the church in the past, he said, I understand that you're going to be testing us and that's, that's a price we're willing to pay wow. because we love you that much. And so there are just these like little key phrases throughout my time in the church that these guys who've been, and it happens to be guys, I, you know, I have no problem with a woman leading, so let's be clear about that, but, yeah. um, but that these guys have said that it just the spirit is just like laid into me and they just like echo in my head when i hmm. when like the the doubts start to come in i start hearing hearing these wonderful phrases of of how god is loving me through these people yeah so good i wanted to go back um you made a comment in passing and i've, I've seen this over and over in my life and in, in many of my friends lives that we we just don't have a we just don't have a clue what gender dysphoria feels like yeah. It's just we don't have a cat. There's no. It's not like a. There's no like analogy that I'm like. Oh yeah, it's kind of like this, and I kind of can. We just don't. I don't think. I mean, can, can you? First of all, is there any way you you could help us to understand that a bit more, or, and or, what are some things people can do to to try to understand what it's like more? Um, I don't know that I can make you understand. Okay. Um, it's if you can imagine. And, and this is this is an awkward th- thing to say, but if like if you can imagine waking up one morning and having breasts, yeah, and how bizarre that would feel to have that on your body, and how much you would want that to be gone just to get back to who you feel like you are and who you know yourself to be, mm-hmm. um, that's the closest thing I can I can say yeah. to it. But it's there's so much more that goes into it with like the whole social aspect of it and. Sure. You know, it's, I know that Kat talked recently, you know, about femininity and what that looks like. So it's, that's part of it. Um, but for me, like the dysphoria really comes so much from the physical aspect, much more than the social. Hold on a second. Uh, <laughs> now you that. hear it. Okay. All right. So we're back now. Um, can you finish up your last few thoughts on 
Yeah, uh, dysphoria. I, first of all, um, if people are willing to take the time to imagine uh, as a male to wake up with breasts um, or as a female to wake up with like a penis or something and like how I can know, I, I, right when you started talking about that, I was like, imagine myself going on public and how I would just feel so like everybody is either staring at me, thinks I'm a freak or what is going on and... I, I just that I immediately I just felt my body almost get really like scared yeah. almost. Is that I mean, is that the kind of next thing that happens when you go out in public? Like you're yes. just so aware of or assuming everybody's staring at me, everybody because you feel like yeah, uh, totally out of place. Um, yeah, and it's um, I I forgive me, I'm forgetting a cat touched on this in the podcast, or it was just a, a conversation she and I'd had, but um there's also you know just a realization that there will never be a time when you're comfortable in a public bathroom yeah ever you know this if you go into the men's bathroom you're going to feel uncomfortable when you're in the women's bathroom you feel uncomfortable so it's just there's just a, a sense of there's never a time when you're going to be comfortable with who you are in public gosh wow is there and i've asked i've asked uh anybody i know who's trans or experiences gender dysphoria it are there things that um, reduce the dysphoria? Because I know for most people, it it does come in waves, right? Unless it's just you're on the extreme level where it's just always there. Typically, mm -hmm. it does come in waves. Would that be accurate for, for you as well? And if Yeah, so, it's definitely cyclical for me. And if so, are there specific things that can trigger it or minimize it? Uh, triggering it would be if people are know about my pronoun preference okay. and ignore that. Now it's, you know, there are people, if people are trying and it make a mistake, like that doesn't even, doesn't even phase me. It's, it's more upsetting when people make a big deal about making a mistake it's, that I have to turn, turn around and make them feel good. That's, that's more upsetting. But if there's someone who, who knows that my pronouns and, and refuses to use them, okay. th that's, that's triggering. Um, oddly, like when I'm, when I pass as a guy, like, not that I'm trying to pass as a guy ever, but like when somebody says yes, sir, or something like that to me, hmm. that feels really good. But then it triggers the dysphoria of, wow, I don't have what I want. I'm uh, not who I want to be. And I, I, I don't guess I've really said this. I am genderqueer, which means, and, and I know that genderqueer and non-binary are, are terms that are, are confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. So, so what that means is that I don't necessarily identify as male or female, okay. um, that, that, really thinking about myself as either one is incredibly uncomfortable. Okay. Now, um, can I dig into that a little bit? So, um, cause I mean, male and female are, are strict biological categories, male, female, and then I guess there's intersex, but then you have the whole gender thing that is super complex and multi-layered and multifaceted. Um, would you say that, so when I use the categories, I use like male and female just in the, in the, in the strict biological sense. If I want to yeah. include aspects of gender, I use man, woman, or even mm -hmm. if I only want to refer to kind of like societal expectations, I use masculine, feminine. So those are kind of the sure. three. Would you say, if, if assuming my, the categories I typically use, would you say you don't identify as man or woman or masculine or feminine? Or does that... So, so that they're more, categories, so more yeah. gender categories, not biological. So sex under the, the bio sex category, I would say that I don't identify as either. Okay. That it's, whereas I am biologically female, that is something that, that even saying it brings a great amount of discomfort to me. 
um, but I also recognize I'm not biological male, so I don't feel like I can say that. Um, with masculine and feminine, I would say I'm transmasculine. I believe I come across more masculine than I do feminine. Um, but that's my self-perception. I don't, I don't know. You, you know me pretty well. You can speak into that as, as well as I could, I yeah, think. Yeah. Um, but my perception is that I, I feel more masculine than feminine. But there are also aspects of me, like my, um, you know, we're talking about societal stuff. You know, I'm, I'm incredibly empathetic, and I know that. And, yeah. um, you know, I have like a mama bear side to me. So there's, you know, where I'm fiercely protective, not in a, not in a male way, but in a more female mama bear kind of way of, of people I care about. So I can't really land in either camp there. So it's just, I feel like I live in this nebulous in-between yeah. world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would for my... I was going to say the exact same thing. If you take the kind of stereotype masculine, feminine, you know, empathy is stereotypically a, a more feminine trait, which I, I don't even know if I, I think that's, that that's the stereotype, but yeah, I, I think it's way overplayed. I mean, it, it might be 60, 40 or something like that, but anyway, but, but that is the stereotype. So I, I would say with you, if you're going to, if you're going to say, uh, let's just say gender refers to those kind of stereo, the, the spectrum of, masculinity femininity then I, I would put you like yeah gender queer gender fluid something like that or non-binary so, somewhere it's like you don't fit into either box in an airtight way um but i don't i don't those yeah can you can you dig a little bit more into the stereotypes because i've talked to um well a few people cat was one of them but it's another um friend kyla who says um when she's around and she does She's okay. Uh, I think she prefers the female pronoun now. Um, I'll just use her name. When Kyla, <laughs> can you hear that? <laughs> I'm so sorry, folks. When Kyla is around um, other females who are stereotypically feminine, or even men who are stereotypically masculine, when she's around social environments where these these airtight boxes kind of being reinforced, that's that can trigger the dysphoria. Like if she knew she was going to go to a women's retreat and they're going to do like arts and crafts and wear dresses, she would, her dysphoria would be through the roof, you know? Yeah. Would you say, was that the same for you when you're around? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So like we have a staff retreat coming up for lead them home this uh, Monday and Tuesday of this next week. And, um, I was, I can't tell you the amount of anxiety I had over like how rooming was going to be done. Was I going to be put in a bunk room with like the two other women on staff? Like my dysphoria was off the charts just even thinking about that. Um, now it's, everything's been worked out and like I've been loved and you know, I, I'm going to be exactly where I want to be. Um, but it was just, it just even having to think about that or like if I'm in a part, you know, just like a, a simple social gathering, you know, and the guys are outside by the grill talking, you know, football or, you know, what, you know, whatever, just like the very stereotypical things that happen. Um, I remember one time uh, being in a party and like all the women were inside talking about like how they were the wallpaper they were going to put up in this woman's house. And I was thinking, dear baby Jesus, this is the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. Like I have, I don't care. Wallpaper's ugly, paint it. <laughs> so, so, you know, I just wanted to be outside with the guys talking football and, you know, figuring out what dry rub we were going to use, <laughs> you know, like it just, like, that's where that's I wanted, awesome. that's, that's where my mind goes. And it's, um, and it's something that, that I have to be very well aware of um, when I, and it, it, it has kind of come back to bite me that, um, that there are times that then women get kind of um, 
territorial around their guys because I'm there. And so if I have to work extra hard to make sure they understand my, my gender identity, to understand that I'm not approaching their husband as another woman, you know, that, that no, this is just a really easy hang for me. And that's, you know, that it's, it's super conflicting for me to be in there with the women. And in yeah. times when I go to women's retreats or, um, I'm not involved in the women's ministry at all in the church where I am now, but, um, there I was, you know, when I was up here in Massachusetts and man, those days I would go home and I would want to cut so badly because it would just, and it was just so horrific to, and I can't even explain it. Just like the anxiety and the hatred towards myself and what I have and what I wanted to have. And, um, just how that anxiety would build up over the day of, of being around just women. Right. And then what that would look like when I was at home, when I was at home with silence and just all of the thoughts that would come flooding in in that silence. Can I ask you with, with the self-harm thing? I, I know a, a pretty high percentage of people, mo- much more than people realize, struggle with this. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it until I, I first started as a college professor and we were sharing stats of student self-harm. Well, what, um, can, can you speak to somebody listening to the 5 10% of people that might be wrestling with that or more even? Uh, can you speak any words of wisdom and advice for that person so that they um, maybe don't do that? Uh, yeah. So I now have a safety net. Um, when those the self harm uh, spiral is is just that is a downward spiral. Um, when pain starts to get out of control, it's a way that you can control the pain by inflicting it on yourself. So the mental pain becomes physical pain, but it's physical pain that you have control over. Um, so and it's just a cycle and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse until you actually do something so i now have um i have a a structure set up i have people that when that's when that spiral starts i send a text hey this is what's going on and they know they're they're like three or four so it's not just on you know one person that they always have to be that that thing for me um but they know as a group that they need to come together okay who's got leslie today you know it's it's unfortunate that i have to do that but it's, it's something that i've put in place to keep myself safe um, so, so yeah, it's just having the, and the minute you can break that cycle and start and open it up and stop spinning. And for me, that's what it is. My head just starts spinning and nothing will stop it other than creating pain myself rather than experiencing the emotional pain that I'm feeling. And so when I can wow. reach out and I can break that cycle, once again, that gives God room to speak into my life rather than constantly being, um, overburdened by the lies or just completely drowning in the lies there's by reaching out i I give room for the light to come in and and for god's truth to come in about who i am that's super helpful thank you for that and i know this is these are sensitive personal topics that i'm sure aren't easy to talk about but i your vulnerability is i think going to help a lot of people i know for some people too i don't know if you've experienced this um for some people it can be almost like a self-atoning, like if they do things they that they know are wrong, kind of they feel so bad, they feel so guilty yeah. that um, that this is their way of kind of punishing themselves. Is, punishing, is that would you yeah. say that's almost like a different category of self-harm, or um... it, it's a different way of processing it? Okay, um, but yeah, it's I've, I've certainly um, kind of the mea culpa thing is, is certainly something that I've done before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's jump forward to your ministry now. Talk to us about what you've been doing since you came to Christ and maybe share a few stories, you know, some highlights, maybe some highs and lows from your current, uh, your current job, <laughs> which is much, much more than a job. 
Yeah, so, um, so now I, I work with Lead Them Home. I'm the Gender Identity Ministries Director. Um, we're in the process of putting together a, a three to four hour um, presentation that will go around the country that we can present to pastors to introduce them to the gender identity conversation and, and just kind of give them some help because it's, there's this huge question mark right now and you see so many pastors wanting to do it right, desperately wanting to serve this community, but just having no idea what to do. And so that's, that is the hope is that this will be a tool to help, help pastors and church leaders engage in that. Um, I'm also a mentor for LGBT youth and it's they cut youth and adults. Honestly, like I think the oldest person I'm work, working with right now is 63. The youngest is 14. Um, so it's, you know, really kind of a spectrum. It's predominantly trans people or people who are genderqueer. I see trans as a spectrum now. Um, it's kind of an umbrella term. So anyone under that umbrella um, term. So that's part of it. There's also LGBT you know, LGB people. Um, that that I work with as well, but it's it's primarily trans kids. Um, there there was um, I sent this out in the newsletter recently, but we had we had one kid who um, sent in an email. You know, and it started out with just um, I go to a Christian school. I'm transgender. I told my friend, who told the school um, the school administrator, who then told all the parents, including mine. My parents will no longer talk to me. Um, the school, this was a Catholic school, the priest told her that she, or I'm sorry, told him that he was going to burn in hell. Um, and the closing line of this, of this initial email was, um, I want to die. I want to go be with God in heaven, but I don't know if God would even let me in. Help. Is like, is this initial email we get from this kid? And this is just, we don't get these every day, but this is not a rare occurrence. Um, and this particular kid, I followed for about six, eight months. And then, you know, just got an email. I'm not gonna be able to talk to you again for a while. I've been kicked out of my home. I don't know how long, how much longer my phone's going to work. And it's, it's now September of 2019. I haven't heard from the kids since uh, November of 2018. Yeah. So it's been almost a year. Um, so increasing family inclusion is a huge part of our mission. Uh, missional statement is an organization. Um, but also being there to pick up the pieces for these kids when the parents don't. So we have a justice initiative, you know, for kids who are in college and their parents have kicked them out. We help pay room and board uh, for them. And there's no, there's no faith requirement in it. It's one of the kids we're paying for was just in San Francisco and transitioned this summer. We are simply there to show the love of Christ, to nourish their faith identity. And so that's, that's another huge part of what we're doing outside of, of the training. And of course, um, you know, as a bigger organization, training pastors and elders, just what to do with LGBT people in the church mm -hmm. as a whole. How, uh, thank you for being involved in that. My goodness. I mean, I hear the stories and it's like, I mean, that, that's just, um, especially somebody who's naturally empathetic. I don't know how you sleep at night. I mean, that's, I, well, I don't, you don't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I, cause I, I hear similar stories too. And it's, um, it's overwhel it's overwhelming, you know. Um, yeah. Which is why we do what we do. Let me ask you the question. This is something I've I've thought about. I don't know if we I don't I don't think you and I have ever talked about it, but so I'm I'm everything you said. I'm like absolutely on board. And you've heard me speak out against you know parents kicking their kids out of the house or whatever. You know, uh, increasing family inclusion. But what about? Let me just take an example from just a straight kid. What if you'd have just a real obstinate? 
destructive, disrespectful, straight kid, you know? And there's, and again, even there, I don't kicking someone out of the house unless they were doing such destructive things that are putting other family members at harm. I don't know. I don't know. But let's just say somebody who's not, let's just say they're out of the house, they're out over 18, whatever. But they are, yeah, let's just say they're very, very hyper disrespectful, destructive. They're doing things that, um, where, say, maybe funding their college would be enabling them, you know, would actually be like, no, they need to realize that if you don't, if you live this way, it's going to lead to destruction and, and you need to get a job. You can't keep whatever. Like, there, there, I could see parental wisdom in saying, you know, we're not going to pay for your college. Again, I'm just thinking just straight people right now. But let's map it now on somebody who happens to also be LGBT. I mean, it, it, I'm trying to formulate that question really carefully. Like, is there a place, and I don't even love this phrase, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but is there a place for tough love for somebody who is living these kind of destructive ways who also happens to be LGBTQ? Do you know what I'm trying to, I mean, I... I yeah, so it's... Like, oh, so here's how I'd formulate Like, Like, the, you know, that you guys provide funds for somebody that needs college, dorm, whatever... I would say, you know, I, to me, I was like, that sounds so brilliant. I was like, I hope people take, you know, I imitate that example. But I would want to know, the, well, I, I, would, I wouldn't want to just, just because you're LGBTQ and you've been rejected by your family, therefore you're qualified or you should be getting whatever, like there's, you know, um, is this actually going to be helpful for them in, in the long run? With that. So we, what we're doing is very, we don't have the same responsibilities that a parent has. So, so let me be clear about that. Um, but Bill has a phrase that, uh, Bill Henson, our, our president and yeah. CEO, has a phrase that really kind of guides how we interact with everyone, gay, straight, trans, parents, pastor, whatever, whether it's somebody that's coming in as complete, completely homophobic or someone who's been completely um, wounded by the church. And that's that the gospel of gospel of exclusion has no power to reach an already banished people. Mm. We cannot that's exclude good. people in the name of Christ or in the name of discipline who have already been banished by the church. We have to show inclusion, love and acceptance. We have to be the loving aspect of Christ. They've already had the harsh truth thrown at them it hasn't been in love it's been in harshness so we have to be that aspect and that's you know going back to the pastor who loved me there was that uh, th that initial of just love and acceptance there is a time where truth will come into play but you cannot speak truth into somebody's life until you have permission to do that and so yeah. if, you're, if you're having this gospel of exclusion of okay this rigidness of we're going to do this this and this and to an already banished people, they're not going to hear the gospel. And, and obviously as, as a ministry, as, as someone in ministry, that is my goal is for, especially this community, people like me to understand that not only does God love you, not only does God adore you, God is chasing you, God is pursuing you, you know, and that's, that's just such a foreign idea to so many LGBT people that, you know, it's not that God tolerates me, God is chasing after me, God is, you know, with the prodigal son, you know, the father lifting up his, yeah. his robes and exposing himself, like God is, is exposing himself and is, is you know, uh, you know, showing humiliation to come after us. And it's, you know, that's everybody, but we, we have this mentality that it's everybody but us. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. that's where we're just like, 
you you saved said this before i believe as well but i would rather be wrong and be right in relationship yeah than to be right in theology and wrong in relationship yeah, that's right and I, I think that's just kind of where you have to operate from especially in this conversation that's super helpful. Um, I keep, by the way, I don't know if you can hear it, but I keep muting my microphone so that it's some of my noise doesn't come through. It doesn't, okay, kid. So if, if you don't hear me like amening what you're saying, it's not, <laughs> I'm doing it over here in my head. <laughs> you're like, he's so non-responsive. I, I get really self-conscious about that. Like when I'm talking and people are just like this, like just staring, I'm like, all right, so obviously you don't agree, or maybe you do agree, or maybe you're asleep, or maybe you think I'm an idiot, and then I start getting all in my head, but anyway. Um, all right, let's talk about the whole trend side of this. Uh, I know you and I have had some conversations about rapid onset gender dysphoria, you know, the um, people who don't experience, let's just say, early onset gender dysphoria from childhood, like, like you and, you know, many other people we know, but it seems to be, I'll just say it seems to be, that there seems to be this idea that there could be social influence, social contagion, or even like a trendiness or popularity about being, uh, trans or LGBTQ. I just heard um, we have a local high school here in town that's in kind of a progressive area, and I just heard some teacher said that about 40% of the student body identifies as bisexual or non-binary or kind of an in-between category, um, which, you know, I I hear that, and, and I'm like, wow, I don't know. Like, scientifically, bisexuality is like 0.9% of the population. Like, how is it 40% of a high Like, there's – that's just – I have to at least ask a question, is there some kind of trendiness going on? And even as I'm talking, you might be like, ah, oh, triggers. <laughs> but I'm doing that intentionally because I want to fire you up. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on, so we have, so again, there's people who, I mean, obviously um, have what can be debilitating gender dysphoria, like in, and then is there, a, is there another category of some trendiness that could be feeding into this? And, and how, how can you help us think through maybe those two kinds of, let's just say, transgender experience or identities? <laughs> sure. So I can't speak into what another transgender person thinks, feels, says, wants, does, um, any more than you can what, how another tra straight person does. Um, I will say that, you know, even if you go into the DSM, what are we at? Four or five now? The DSM five, um, five yeah. you know, um, late onset gender dysphoria is something that, that is, um, you know, that, that has been, that is in and has been in there that, you know, that it can occur during puberty or much later in life. Um, right. you know, the whole rapid onset gender dysphoria thing, you know, when, when you go back to the initial, um, article, uh, you, you know, that came out of Brown. The the frustrating thing about that is that nothing has been done studying trans people. All of these studies are trans are parents of trans kids. And so, whereas it might be, um, it, it might be something that came out super fast for them. You don't know how long it's been in the kid's mind. And as a, as a, <laughs> you're muted. <laughs> like I've seen you. What's that? You were muted. I was thinking like, right, right, right. Oh. <laughs> no sound. Um, so, but there's, there's nothing that's been done, like actually studying the kids and these kids honestly may not have language to express what they're, what they're, um, you know, what they're feeling. But if you, to say that 40% are non-binary, I would want to get into that community and find out, okay, what does non-binary mean to you? 
Right. Does it mean that you don't socially line up with what with what these gender roles are? Or are you saying that physically you don't feel like you line up with a male or a female? And I think that that's where we're evolving as a society and trying to find the language for these different different terms. And and so saying that someone that forty percent is non-binary doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what's really happening. Right. Are there really forty percent of the kids with dysphoria? Are there forty percent of the kids that are raging against our current societal norms of what male and female, uh, what right. uh, masculine and feminine look like? Right. Um, do you have any insight? into that with this particular district no this is this is a um and it, and it was again it was kind of a, several different categories thrown out and i don't even i don't even want to verify the 40 percent. it was just two different okay. people um said mm. it's just such a it's almost like and I've, i have seen this at several different high schools that i've been connected with or even junior mm-hmm. highs where being you know a, a straight just straight and especially if you're white and cisgender it's almost like What's wrong with you? You know, it's like I know some people. That's almost like it's almost completely flipped around. Like the experience that that your friend had at the Christian high school, at some public high schools, it's almost like just your existence as a straight white male cisgender. It's like you embody everything that's wrong with society. And and some of this is it's teenagers sorting stuff out. It's it's just there's there's it's I was you know we're all searching stuff out as a teenager, but um uh. It can't, I mean, it can't, I don't know, like, if the DSM is correct, I mean, that's the authority, you know, gen, people who experience, like, diagnosable gender dysphoria is, it's not, there's no way it could be 40, couldn't be 20% or even 10%. Um, my, my assumption is what you, I mean, you even said it, that, that there are these rigid stereotypes or just, like, expectations for what you should be that are being resisted. I actually like the phrase gender nonconforming because it's so mm-hmm. general enough that it's like, I know I know a lot of straight, just cisgender people who would almost resist that. You know, guys that don't like to watch football because they don't like to see violence or people getting hurt. And it's like, well, what's wrong with you? You're a man, right? You know, it's like, wait, wait, where in the Bible does it say you have to like enjoy violence? <laughs> you know, like, um, now you and I happen to like football, but <laughs> so, so what's happening here is very common. And with when anytime a marginalized community starts to get a voice is that appropriation happens. And so what is a term that is meant to, to describe something that is very real in someone's psyche you know of of how we identify or or what physically we want all of a sudden because it's been given a voice and so it's now in the main not necessarily in the mainstream but at least has a voice in the mainstream it's being appropriated in exactly what you just said well yeah i can identify with that you know it's you know because i don't like this or i do like that okay so great so maybe we need to redefine what we see as masculine and feminine but gender non-conforming when it comes to identity is so much bigger than what a straight cis male would think of it as being mm, okay. and so it's um that i think that's another part of this is that there's so much appropriation happening as it's as the um as the language is, is becoming um just just more prevalent that people are trying to make it fit themselves because that's what we do as a society we want yeah. we want to be inclusive and we want to be included in whatever's happening um yeah. Not that I'm saying that's what gender dysphoria in kids is, is at all. That there was like a stop and moving right. on in the conversation. Yeah. That's uh, super helpful. When, when a minority community gets a voice, it can become appropriate. That that's that's super helpful, actually. Um, 
Yeah, I'm going to mull over that. You, you said you wanted to, um, you had some thoughts on Lippmann's study. Uh, you you kind of mentioned it passing, but I just want to give you another, some more space to kind of go into that. Yeah, there, there's want. not a whole, there's, there's not a whole lot. Um, oh, sorry, honestly. just to repeat, the, the big thing you had a problem is, is that it was just looking at the parents. It was interviewing the parents. Not exactly. The parents. It's beyond that. I, I don't want to give that study my time or energy a whole lot because there's just so much in it that, that I just, um, okay. that I'm against, but it's, um, you know the fact that it's saying that this is all new and, and everything and it's it's not you know it's uh, the numbers are being reported perhaps at a higher rate because it's bigger in the conversation but, but yeah just that it's it's about it's about the parents once again it's about the cis people the cisgender people so people who whose minds and bodies are in alignment um i would love to see an equal you know something else come out of you know brown or you know one of the, you know, one of the other ivy league schools specifically about what it's like for us you know give me a peer-reviewed study for for trans people mm -hmm. that's something i can get behind um parents are, are just trying to figure it out they're, they're doing their best and you know, something that i've said to you with the best of intentions you're going to make mistakes you're going to fail miserably because it's it's new to you and it's, yeah. it's a conversation that you're learning about rather than a conversation you're in. Yeah. And so it, it, it's just upsetting to me that, you know, these three sites and then that one study are something that is, are just looked at so prevalently as, you know, part of this ROGD conversation, but it's all done by cis people and it's all interviews with parents and parents' experiences with their kids with nothing looking at what the kids or those of us who have gone through it are actually experiencing. Would it be, what about, um, so I've, I've been listening to a few other um, websites, podcasts, blogs from uh, kids, kids like young 20s who yes. did go through what they would identify now as like ROGD and then have now detransitioned socially. Not They never medically transitioned. I think one of them might have that I listened to. Um, it's uh, There's one... Um, uh, Peak Resilience is, is, is one website. It's for uh, biological females who went through kind of the ROGD stuff, and now they're on the other side. They're like 20, 21, 22, and, and mm -hmm. uh, I think they still identify as lesbian or some of them do. Um, but they kind of they kind of say the same they say, say the same thing, that they might have had more masculine interests, but they were very thankful they didn't take more medical intervention because it, they, they said, yeah, it was kind of a – there was a trendiness factor to it, you know. Well, um, I, I think that's where you have to nail down, you know, what we said earlier, that you have to nail down the physical aspect. Is it, is it a biological difference mm -hmm. that you're feeling or is it a social difference? And I think as, as women are starting to, to find their voices even more and more as, you know, as, as fem, uh, feminist movement is, is moving forward and everything that, um, that there's more and more pushback against what is a male role versus a, or sorry i'm trying to use your terms here so you would say which is a masculine, masculine role versus yeah. a feminine role you could use um, you could no this is like you, you, well no it's just just for the sake of consistency throughout your other other this podcasts is, this is fascinating that you're honoring my pronoun this is <laughs> uh, take a lesson sprinkle i know i know i know <laughs> We didn't get into that. I just, it was so, I mean, you referenced somebody, you know, when you, when people miss, yeah. don't use your pronouns and, and my audience didn't know that that was actually me. Who, <laughs> well, it wasn't referring specifically to I you. I know you but... weren't. I, I, this is just delightful that uh, you were saving my face, even though um, I'm a big fan of using people's preferred pronouns, especially when you first encounter the person. And I, 
So if I could correct, <laughs> if we violated, it's, and I was using she when we met, so it's. Um, but I've known you anyway, gone by they them. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah. anyway. So. Uh, but if, if I could just go back to one thing you just said really quickly, yeah. you said preferred pronouns. Oh yeah, yeah. That's not good, right? It's... So, so, it, but it, I would love to explain why to the people that are listening that the preferred makes it seem like it's optional, and to me, it's not optional because simply using somebody's pronouns can decrease suicidality by forty to sixty percent. Wow! And so, it's not those aren't a kid's or a person's preferred pronouns; those are their pronouns. Period. Mm -hmm. When somebody tells you their pronouns, you honor them because it could mean the difference between them being alive or not. Mm -hmm. You never know if you are that one person that's going to speak into their lives enough to validate who they think they are so that they're alive tomorrow. Hold on. Hold on a second. I got a guy drilling above my head. I have a really, I want a question that I want to ask you. And I love, this is what I love about Leslie um, is that we have such a good relationship. We can ask hard questions. Um, I don't, I, I agree with everything you said there. And that's fascinating and horrific really that, the suicide rate is so high um, when there's people not using other, per other person's pronouns. What about the person that says, well, wait a minute, uh, she, him, his, hers refers to somebody's biological sex. And unless you're intersex, you are either male or female biologically. So we are lying to the person. We are, and I'm just quoting people, and I hope this isn't offensive. This isn't me. This is people out there. Um, we, why would we reinforce delusion by calling a biological male she or vice versa? What would you say to someone that said that? I have a hard time with that, honestly, because that is very triggering. But um, I, I would say that Christ met people where they were. I would go back to Jesus and Peter. And when Jesus was saying, do you agape me? Peter said, I phileo you. Do you agape me? I phileo you. Jesus, you know my heart. Jesus changed his language. Do you phileo me? Knowing that agape was the standard. The agape is where he wanted Peter to be. Jesus changed his language to meet Peter where Peter was. So I think if Jesus can do it, we can do it. <laughs> oh, I got to think about that. that, that <laughs> I'm gonna mull over that. I, I, I might, I might agree with that. That, that's. Is, where'd you get that from? Is that <laughs> my brain? I don't know. That's fast. Did you? Because uh, that is. Um, somebody could say, "Well, phileo and agape," but well, no, they are different, and, and he does change it. I, I gotta think about that. You know, one thing that um our, fr our mutual friend Greg Coles brought up, um, and I we have a, at the center we have a paper addressing this and why uh, Christians should be okay using somebody's pronouns so so preferred is not the you're encouraging people not to use the phrase preferred pronouns just say their pronouns yeah. um you know the even the greek word theos for god it means god right it's used all over the new testament theos um in the first century if you walked around this marketplace talking about theos people would think you're talking about zeus or some pagan like it was mm -hmm. and um and yet that term has been used against its textbook meaning in the Greek, the Greco-Roman kind of mindset. Again, these are not perfect analogies, but they do show 
that there is some flexibility in in language. My biggest thing, honestly, isn't that theological. Other, well, it's incarnational. It's it's Jesus met people where they're at. When he came mm-hmm. down, he spoke. He didn't speak heaven. He didn't speak God. He spoke kind of a trashy version of Greek, Corne Greek. That was like for the uneducated, you know. And um, mm-hmm. people don't know this, but the 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 Book of Revelation has like it's like terrible Greek grammar. <laughs> like if you were like a Greek teacher in the first century and you read Revelation, you'd fail. John, you know, like it would be, he would, no, seriously, it's like really bad Greek grammar. Um, and so, but that's, that's, that's another small example of God meeting us where we're at with language. Hey, we're just about out of time, Leslie. I want to make sure that people know how valuable you are for the kingdom. The work you're doing, I will say it. I mean, it, it's probably is better coming from me. I mean, you are an invaluable piece of this conversation in the broader evangelical church. I mean, I, I wish we could multiply you by a thousand. The, the, your ability to dig into people's lives, to be available, to walk with people, to know, like it's you walking with somebody, the people you walk with is always going to be better than me. I think, I mean, I, I it's just, there's, there's going to be things that you can bring to the table relationally that I never will be able to. So we as a church need to release, like we need to, release you, supports you, and raise up other Leslie's across the board. So you are, and I'm just going to say, you're self-supported. You raise support, um, yeah. and you need more support. Like, And you uh, and I'll, you should not have to worry about money. You, the church has enough money. We're a multi-trillion dollar organization. We've got the money. So um, how can people support you and your ministry? Uh, the site is uh, leadthemhome.org forward slash forward slash Leslie, so L-E-S-L-I, with no E at the end, because my mom decided to be incredibly cruel and <laughs> curse me with people spelling my name my wrong my entire life. Um, but yeah, so it's leadthemhome.org forward slash Leslie, L-E-S-L-I. And it's there are options there to do either monthly or, or one-time gifts. And you would accept both. I, I would highly encourage people. I mean, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. I mean, think about it. If like, there's several thousand people listening to this podcast. If, if you got like... 50 people at 10 bucks a month, you know, or 20 bucks. That'd be huge. And that's not, it's like, that's, that's, they wouldn't even feel that. So I look, if, if you, if you guys trust me out there and you're like, I don't know about the Leslie person, you know, and her pronouns, whatever, just, just know she, uh, if some of you need to know, she, she is a side B or she holds her traditional theology. She's not out trying to transition people across the board, whatever, but she's going to enter into people's space, walk with them where they're at in ways that you and I can never do. So thank you so much, Leslie, for your work. Most of all, thanks for your friendship. And we need to, we're going to see each other again in a couple of weeks and we're going to grab yeah. a beer and hang out. So um, can't wait to see Indeed. you again, friend. Yes. All right. Take care.